beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance in showing up in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Jean Jeffress, here with you for the first time today. I'm very thankful for the invitation to contribute to this body of work. I'm a member and lay leader at the First Congregational Church of Oakland, United Church of Christ. I'm also ordained pending call in the Northern California, Nevada Conference of the United Church of Christ. I'm a preacher, musician, I like to cook, and I have a cat named Baby Boy. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and currently live in the city of Oakland, which exists on the unceded land of the Ohlone people. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. We find ourselves entering the third week of Advent. It feels like the season has flown by, from the greening of the sanctuary at church to the lighting of the candles on Sunday. The time has disappeared. It feels faster this year, like the earth has sped up on its axis. I think Advent has a way of rupturing the space-time continuum. Every year we wait for the beginning of something that has already begun, something that starts with an end and ends with a beginning. There's no way that linear time with its calendars and seasons can compete with Advent. Or I could just be feeling the end-of-year craziness. Always a possibility. In any case, our Christian liturgical calendar this year focuses on the Gospel of Matthew. Our Advent scriptures, however, don't start us out at the beginning of Matthew with the genealogy that makes Jesus a descendant of Abraham through Matthew's birth narrative, which includes the Magi, the educated and privileged guys who make their way by a star to pay homage and bring gifts to the illegitimate child born of a poor teenage girl in a barn, through the escape of Mary, Joseph, and the infant Jesus, from the threat of death by the corrupt government under which they lived seeking refuge in Egypt, which would make Jesus and his family refugees, a story that is ever more heartbreaking to tell as families sit in cages along our southern border. Our lectionary doesn't offer us this gripping political drama that is the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. 
we have to wait for Christmas and then Epiphany for those particular stories. Advent always seems to begin with the end, with an apocalyptic vision of the Son of Man coming. In Matthew, we are told that the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour, that two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left, that two women will be grinding meal together, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Is this the rapture? Doubtful. On Facebook recently, Reverend Dan Dunlap wrote a comment on a post about the passage from which these lines come, Matthew 24, 36 through 44, explaining that the idea of one being taken and one being left was probably as simple as the fact that empire disappears people. And I paraphrased a bit. So then after we begin Advent with the end, we are introduced to John the Baptist. The introduction of John the Baptist is, in a way, a beginning. It's the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. John declares himself, or rather, John decenters himself, acknowledging in Matthew 3.11 that he is not even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. He seems prepared to move over and make room for Jesus. And this is what Advent is about. The season of Advent is about the prayerful preparation and anticipation of what exactly? For what are we waiting again? Oh yeah, something about the kingdom of God coming near. Well, what is that? And how do we know when it's near? And this is where we find ourselves on this third week of Advent in a prison cell with John the Baptist who has some questions of his own. Here is the passage from Matthew. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who has come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed, dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness like an aberration, says Reza Aslan in his book Zealot. And Aslan emphasized that we really don't know much about John the Baptist beyond what he wore and what he ate. On the one hand, he calls, his, he calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers, while on the other hand, he gives rich folks, tax collectors, and soldiers perfectly reasonable advice. If you have two coats, give one away. If you have extra food, share. Don't collect more tax than you're owed. Don't intimidate or blackmail people. Perfectly reasonable. He could have been the son of a priest who abandoned that life. He could have been the cousin of Jesus. 
he could have been someone whom Jesus followed. Maybe they had competed for followers. Until, of course, John was arrested, which is where we are in this passage. What's interesting to me is that John seems so sure at the River Jordan about who Jesus is. He says in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance of sins, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's no hesitation. There's no indication that he wonders, even for a moment, if Jesus is indeed the more powerful one that is coming after him. But when we get back to John in chapter 11, he's got questions. Are you the one? Or do we wait for another? I mean, I felt certain at the river, but now that I'm sitting here in this jail cell, I really want to know if you're the one. I mean, I was very enthusiastic at the river, but now I need to know, is the kingdom of God still near? Always a good question. I was very enthusiastic to work with other white folks a few years ago in a church setting on the topic of racism and white privilege, a.k.a. white supremacy. I was still in seminary and had just gotten back from a contextual learning trip to St. Louis, Missouri. There, we had teamed up with the class from Eden Theological Seminary and learned about what happened in the aftermath of the murder of Michael Brown from people who were there. Of course, many of the Eden students were among those out protesting every night as well. It was altogether amazing and inspiring, heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. It's a little embarrassing to acknowledge this, but it's there in St. Louis as a person already in my 40s that I realized what I needed to do about white supremacy first and foremost was greed. White supremacy is an atrocity in which I have a part, something I had not ever cared to think about before. I grew up on the colorblind left coast and was taught, not intentionally taught, but nonetheless taught that racism was a behavior that people did. So if I didn't do the racism, and if other people stopped doing the racism, then it would go away. That hasn't worked. The second thing I knew I had to do about white supremacy was to take responsibility for talking to other white people about racism. And I was psyched. I was immersed in a seminary environment whose response to the Black Lives Matter movement at that time was to offer classes, workshops, and lectures where we would discuss theological ideas as well as action. I felt ready to engage other white people in the work. I assembled a group of about 12 or 13 church folks and started to meet weekly and discuss articles and current events. On the one hand, it was great. I was doing the work. On the other hand, it was so awkward and uncomfortable. What I found was that even though people were there, there were people who really didn't want to do the work of self-examination, who were deeply uncomfortable with whiteness being named, who defended the racist foundations of our institutions, and who, of course, already knew everything because A, they aren't racist, or B, they took a workshop or a training already. Bottom line, everyone's privilege was showing, and nobody liked it. 
I remember writing a paper in one of my theology classes that semester about working with other white people on racism and white supremacy, about which I said, it's not as fun as it sounds. I'm not saying all this to say that I think I'm better or more quote-unquote woke than people than the people who are in that church group. I'm saying it because I'm actually a little of all of them. It's easy to want to point the finger at others, but when we do that, when I do that, I just create more separation. White people, like me, need to find ways to connect with and welcome other white people into anti-racism spaces and try to meet others where they are. It's hard. And still, when I attend groups with other white people, whether to do work in solidarity with POC groups or working together to dismantle white supremacy in our own lives and contexts, I find myself saying, is this really the work? Or should I be waiting for something else? that my situation, the awkwardness, discomfort, and lack of connection that I experience at times doing anti-racism work with other white people doesn't compare, in the least, to the situation of John the Baptist in his prison cell. For one thing, John would not be the white person in the story. He wouldn't be the white guy in the story. John wasn't fighting oppression from the perspective of someone with privilege, someone like me, a white middle-class educated American citizen. John was not a Roman citizen. He was preaching, prophesying, and baptizing in the name of setting his own people free from the tyranny and violence of Roman supremacy. I believe that John wanted people to repent of the things that would tempt them to cling to and abuse power. He called out religious leaders, wealthy people, tax collectors, and soldiers because they had resources and power that they could use and abuse. John the Baptist knew there was another way, another realm, and that another world was possible. I believe John the Baptist knew about this. And he didn't tell people to burn down the world that existed. God knows Rome would take care of that. I think that John the Baptist wanted people to build something right in the middle of the imperial mess. The prophet cried and people came out to the water, and they got in. They must have known that Rome wasn't going to change, not without bloodshed, but something had to change. The world would begin and end on the banks of the Jordan, and John the Baptist ushered it in. He was called. He was sure. And that brings me back to his question from the jail cell. The passage tells us He heard what the Messiah was doing, but he still asked. Maybe it was a rhetorical question, or maybe John just needed a word, a capital W word, for himself. A reminder that the kingdom of God was still near. Courage, sisters, don't get weary. Courage, brothers. 
what is that? And how do we know when it's near? The answer Jesus sends back to John the Baptist was, well, in the usual Jesus fashion, it was not a direct answer. It did, however, at least as far as I'm concerned, give John the information that he needed. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Now, I acknowledge that there's a whole ton of ableist language in Jesus' answer. And I offer this interpretation. Jesus is saying to John that the most vulnerable people among us are being taken care of. Their needs are being met and centered. A modern take on this answer might be, the people are receiving quality health care, housing, and jobs with a living wage. This is the stuff of the kingdom of God. Not caring for people as an afterthought, but rather making caring for people the whole point. The message of John the Baptist, in my simplified interpretation, is to prepare the kingdom of God by building a community that cares for the needs of the most vulnerable, and by doing so, we can resist the powers that would seek to tear us apart and destroy us, the powers of empire. Maybe his question from jail was just to make sure that the work he started would continue. And what about today? Is the kingdom of God still near? I believe it is, but it shows up in little spots popping up here and there, existing in pockets in the middle of a vast and violent world. I can't always perceive it, and I'm certainly not always doing the work to usher it in as I am often bogged down in the day-to-day -day tasks of my urban existence. I can, however, tell you about what I can only describe as a tiny bit of the kingdom of God I have experienced lately. Many of you may know about some housing justice work going on in Oakland, California by Moms for Housing. I'll include a link in the transcript. A couple of families have taken up residence in a home left vacant for over two years by its investment company owner. In Oakland, there are four empty homes for every unhoused person. We don't have a homeless crisis. We have a greed crisis. I have joined a group of white allies who keep watch at the house. It's not glamorous work. I'll never get my picture in the paper. Not that I want that. I don't. But just to say that it consists of sitting in a dark room, looking out the slats of closed blinds for three or four hours, not looking at my phone, not talking to people. It can be really dull. One night, while keeping watch, I heard from upstairs one of the small children who live in the house singing. That child sang for at least 45 minutes. They sang their little heart out. As I sat there looking out to the vacant street, my back hurting a little, my brain thinking about all the very important things I should probably be doing, I realized that all that mattered was that that child had a safe place to sing. And that if my body in the dark entryway played any part in making a safe place for that child to sing possible, then that really was all that mattered. And that was the work. And I need not wait for anything else. The kingdom of God was right there. My call to action this week is to check out the link momsforhousing.org 
It has all the latest news articles, a place to donate, and all the information about this important housing justice work being done right here in Oakland, California. And check out what housing justice work is being done wherever you live. We all know that there's a greed crisis all over the place, not just in Oakland. Thank you so much for joining me from wherever you are in this world today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook pages. Next week, we have another new contributor joining us, Grace Aheron, or Aheron. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. Anyway, she will have a resistance word for us for December 22nd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Our, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thanks, Max. Blessings to you and all you do to resist injustice in all you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Jean Jeffress. Rise, shine, yeah.